Folks, I want to welcome you all to On the Edge with K.A. Owens. I'm K.A. Owens, and we're broadcasting from the top of the Habern Building in Louisville, Kentucky. This is On the Edge with K.A. Owens, and we're broadcasting on WFMP-LP Louisville. That's 106.5 FM on your radio dial. Uh, if you want to find out a little bit more about our station, you can go to forwardradio.org. And we are live streaming now. So if you go to that website, click on a button, you can listen to us anywhere in the world. Anywhere in the world. So, folks, uh, we're blessed and favored to have Michael T. With us, Michael T. is a longtime community activist who's lived all over the United States and now resides in Louisville, Kentucky. He's a, a, a playwright, an author, actor, and a community activist on a variety of issues. Welcome to our show, Michael. What's happening? So, Michael, we're in uh, December of the year 2020, uh, interesting year, had the COVID crisis, hundreds of thousands of deaths from COVID-19. We've had economic crisis related to the COVID crisis because we've had to shut down aspects of our economy off and on to protect people's health and safety. We've also had massive demonstrations out across the country on police brutality around various figures, Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, uh, George Floyd, and others, so too, so many others. And so, Michael, uh, uh, looking back at the year 2020, um, what do you see? I mean, uh, uh, what has played a role in this massive failure around the COVID crisis? I mean, with the hundreds of thousands of deaths, if this was World War III, we lost. Mm, we said we lost, huh? <laughs> Well, that's kind of a pessimistic way to look at it, but you could be right, you know. We are in a existential crisis. I think that's the biggest takeaway. Uh, 
that had to be our, our central focus. And unfortunately, like I said, our social systems aren't set up in a way that prioritizes that. Because if they were, we'd have free healthcare for everyone. We'd understand that since we can't totally eliminate all of these viruses and bacteria, we have to live with them. So to minimize the suffering, we have to have free universal access to healthcare. So when these things occur, we're prepared for for them. Um, we talked earlier, you know, how you know one of the failings in this country was that Trump wasn't prepared. I mean, he's a classic example of what the obsession with the accumulation of capital and money and power uh, does to societies. You know, and it's a large part of the dilemma that we're we're in now. So uh, my reference to World War III was that in Vietnam we lost, say, 60,000 people, let's say from 65 to 75. And with COVID, we lost several hundred thousand people in less than a year. Yeah, that's atrocious. That's unacceptable. But you also have to take, I think, another takeaway from this is that uh, our social system, you know, known as capitalism, uh, actually apparently breeds sociopathology. And what I mean there is that, and I've only been recently thinking about this and trying to do some research on it, is that there's something inherent in a capitalistic system that makes you, I mean, not only oblivious to the natural world, but you don't even care about other people. I mean, I've argued, for instance, online recently with people who have said that, yes, we've lost hundreds of thousands of people and millions are sick, but uh, that's uh, less than 5% of the population. Now, to lose as many people as we have, especially if their deaths could have been preventable for any reason, is a, should be considered a human tragedy. I mean, we've lost the equivalent of whole cities. Now, just say if the city of Pittsburgh disappeared, uh, just the pandemic had affected people in Pittsburgh, would we be content to say that, oh, I was just Pittsburgh, we're just one city, you know, one large city, but that many people? And that's why I say, you know, some of this is revealing a real disturbing sociopathology where, um, and I trace it back to, you know, um, you know, the rule of the plutocracy that we're under, you know, the rule of rich people, that it has played in our DNA, if not for all of us, but many of us, a complete um, a lack of concern for people. I mean, people are suffering. And, you know, I'm sure some folks are looking at this. I'm sure Trump is that, you know, these are just old people. These are just the undesirable people. These are the people who are the bottom feeders. So we can lose them and we'll be better off. But for me, if they are looking at it like that, that's pathology um, at best at worst it's something that's even too hideous to even think about that there would be that much of a lack of empathy for all this human suffering no matter what the numbers are you know, you've probably heard the, the line that you know um, 
to one is an injury to all. And I think, you know, we need to be looking at it like that, especially people who claim, you know, they love humanity and they love God and all like that. I mean, God, we'd be concerned about any unnecessary suffering. But unfortunately, as I said, we live in societies that don't prioritize that, you know, and it creates um, a certain kind of greed unfortunately it creates a certain kind of need that you can sort of understand, especially when you look at, you know, the poor classes, okay, they, they can be very oblivious and unconcerned about human suffering and help to perpetuate it out of pure need. But that's tragic too, that you're so needy that now um, you don't even see the needs that other people have. And you would still would kill your brother under the, the uh, excuse that, well, I'm needy too, but, you know, I mean, killing other needy people. I mean, the greed is bad enough. And that when you've got everything and you don't need to harm people to survive. Uh, but, you know, need can create other kinds of, of issues. But it all boils down, again, to a certain kind of social pathology that um, does not prioritize relationship to other people and to the natural world. And again, I think that um, the natural world piece is the most important because, I mean, we can debate, perhaps, I don't think it's debatable, you know, the importance of um, being concerned about others, but if, you don't, if you're not concerned about even your relationship to the natural world, I mean, the very entity on which everything depends, then uh, that, that suggests a total detachment from reality. So when I made the uh, Vietnam reference, I was, of course, referring to 1965 to 1975, those years, even though... Yeah, that was the heart of, the, the, you know, I was growing up um, probably like you in those years, and uh, I remember all that suffering and death, you know, and, you know, this is you know, another um, idea, you know, or um, I think an indication of our social pathologies, you know, uh, and social pathology period that people are even unconcerned about wars. I've heard people say recently that one of the great things about Trump's administration is that he hasn't gotten us into any new wars. But he hasn't stopped any new wars. He hasn't stopped, really, a lot of the hostilities that still exist. And, I mean, there's no indication that Trump is anti-war or wouldn't go to war even to save his own presidency. You know, he's still got time to get us in a war as a last-ditch effort Again, sir, showing his sociopathology, you know, to, to rope us into an unnecessary war just to save his presidency, if that's possible. Oh, sure. Start a war and then declare martial law? Yeah, because they know that, uh, you know, they can whip up the patriotism. You know, people will be distracted. I mean, not that they're all that focused now anyway, but that's just one more distraction. And in terms of the ruling class, that can keep people, you know, um, you know, uh, focused on propping them up because, see, they got to unite around the red, white, and blue and our leadership, you know, to stop the Chinese or the Russians, you know, are trying to destroy us. And then again, that takes us away from our... 
not only takes us away from our natural world relationships and social relationships, but now we're only making it worse. And now we're killing people, harming other people, destroying the national treasury that could be going to more productive kinds of uh, endeavors. And, um, you know, we're right back down the rabbit hole again. So I hope, you know, 2020 has given some people, you know, with all this time on our hands, um, to reflect upon some of the deeper issues of our lives that um, relate, you know, right here in Louisville. I was rereading uh, The Wall Between uh, Anne Brazen's uh, autobiography. Um, I'm doing a paper on uh, white nationalism and the role that it plays in all of this. And, um, you know, specifically in our social relationships. And uh, it was very interesting reading how when she said she first came to Louisville, you know, she's a Kentucky native, but um, she talks about in the book about when she first came to Kentucky in the 40s, you know, and you know, not having grown up here, I'm always interested in getting a, a deeper understanding of where I am. And, you know, and the, the social relationships, specifically as, you know, dealing with black and white people, and um, how, you know, just how contradictory white nationalism um, was and is in the whole scheme of things. I mean, um, she said she met black people who couldn't go into stores, who were segregated in almost every area of life. But at the same time, it's not that the white people were, were that much better off, either the majority of them, but there was a wall between the two that had been erected years before, you know, because uh, Louisville and Kentucky was a slave state, and in order to keep the people divided and estranged from each other, you know, the slaveholders, and she came from um, a slaveholding family uh, somewhere in Kentucky. I'm not exactly sure where it is, but, you know, she's a product of a slaveholding family where, you know, it was important to enlist the support of the poor whites who, you know, most of whom did not even own slaves, but, you know, slaveholders understood that as long as they kept them on their side, no matter how poor they were, that um, slavery could continue. And then you look at today, um, you almost got a modern day version of it. Well, yes. Um, so it's interesting that uh, if you look at the 2020 election, of course, the majority of American white women voted for Donald Trump, just as in 2016, the majority of American white women a voted known, for Trump. A known misogynist that shows you, even in spite of the contradiction, many, excuse me, many people are aware of, you know, between um, patriarchy and women's liberation and men and women. Oh, Michael, let me make the point. Michael. Trump represents the worst of that. They still, so ingrained with white supremacy and white nationalism, you know, and the thought, you know, even among some of the most enlightened 
talented ones that, you know, at the end of the day, this is a white person's nation. Even though, you know, it's, <laughs> you, know um, you know, what we have here is a settler colony that declared itself a nation. You know, killed off the indigenous people and brought slaves in. But, you know, the notion that in spite of all of that, and actually because of all of that, that this country was set up by and for white people, for people who look white, that um, they could still vote for a known misogynist, um, along with, you know, a sociopath, you know, no record, no history of any kind of public service. You know, like everything he did during the four years he's been in office, they could still vote for him, and we could still see the line of demarcation politically between black and white. So, uh, so Michael, it has to be noted that Trump has uh, 15 or 20 sexual assault accusations from white women. So you here you have a white man who's been accused of sexual assault from 15 or 20 white women, uh, but that has no effect on whether or not white women uh, uh, prefer him to be president or not. My, my, uh, my analysis is, Michael, is that American white women are not voting for Trump in spite of accusations. I think that American white women like Trump, that they would date Trump if they could, and that they would be happy if their daughters were to date Trump. white and um, 
common oppression, when we see the things that affect us all. This pandemic, for instance, has the potential of doing that. I mean, as much as it affects us disproportionately, anybody who's not blind can see that, you know, a lot of white folks died from the pandemic. Thus, many of them are affected by the contradictions in our relationship with nature. They can't escape that totally. So, you know, this has a universal effect. It cuts across all nations, you know, just like the wind. You know, just like the sky. It cuts across all nations. The borders don't matter. You know, a flag you're flying does not matter. You know, this is a naturalistic uh, development. But, um, you know, um, uh, you'll see how all of this reveals even the right nationalism. Because even, if, even trying to solve this problem, white nationalism is really created again. Well, Michael, too, then as I think we all have to understand that is, for instance, uh, white people outside of Louisville and Lexington uh, in Kentucky, they love Trump. They would, not only that, they would love for their daughters to marry one of Trump's sons or uh, 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 that sort of thing. They dream at night of being at Mar-a-Lago with Trump. They would... That's what they dream of. And so uh, you hear people outside of Louisville Lexington say that Trump talks the way that we talk. Well, unfortunately, that's true. Uh, but that's not a good thing. But uh, <laughs> well, I think the key, key thing that uh, K, K, um, KA is something that you've always said, that if you they want to be Trump. white supremacy, if you don't understand white supremacy, everything else will confuse you. Absolutely. that it boils down to that. And that's not to say that white supremacy is the only social dilemma that humans and even Americans are confronted with. But I think there's a credible case to be made that in our history, um, it's, a, it's a critical, central issue that bleeds into and affects almost everything that, um, that happens in this country. And, um, you know, it affects even our relationship to the natural world, even our access to the natural world. We can't even get access to many parts of the natural world and the benefits of the natural world because of white supremacy and nationalism. And even among white folks, they don't have equal access to it. But white supremacy blinds them to that fact. And, uh, and this goes into sort of what you said, um, that you know, some of them, um, the lesson they draw from that is not that things are unequal and we must all unite. You know, all of us who are, who are, who are victimized by this inequality, we must unite to overcome it. You know, they look at it like, well, at least I'm not as unequal as the black people. And that's why, you know, perhaps they want to marry Trump's son, um, even, if he, even if he beat him. So that famous quote is from Neely Fuller, who said that uh, until you understand white uh, supremacy, everything else will only confuse you. So I want to give uh, uh, Neely Fuller credit for that. When I first heard that, like, 
lived life and gone various places and you see this reproduced over and over you know and you see this movie Michael uh, Michael I want to thank you for being here with us on our show folks you've been listening to Michael T folks we'll be back next week